Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden-Bradford a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia. And I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here and this season takes it to a whole new level old school legends modern power players and ex-lovers are all competing in cape town south africa for the prize of three hundred thousand dollars and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast listen to mtv's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts Hi, hello, and welcome. This is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, a.k.a. the unofficial Euripides fan club. And I am your host, she with absolutely zero chill when it comes to this fine playwright, Liv. Can you tell I I really like Euripides? I know, I know. I'm subtle as fuck. He's just so fucking interesting. And frankly, he's also the least serious of the tragedians. And gods, do I identify with that? Like, I know they're all tragedies, but guess what? This one does not end in tragedy. (sighs) I love him for that. Even the darkest and dreariest and most bloodthirsty of plays can be lighthearted where Euripides is involved. But before we return to exactly that in the final episode of Iphigenia Among the Torians, another reminder about my New Year Q&A episode. Submit your questions, comments, whatever they may be, by the end of the month at mythsbaby.com slash questions. And I realize by the end of the month, I mean more like the 27th, where we last left two of our three remaining members of the House of Atreus. They were appropriately involved in some drama resolution of tense sibling reunions and about to attempt a thrilling escape from a foreign land. Orestes and his friend Pilates landed in the realm of the Torians in the far east where they were brought to the priestess of Artemis, who we knew to be Orestes' long-believed dead sister, Iphigenia, 
We witnessed some absolutely brilliant conversations between the two where the audience knew well that these were long-lost siblings speaking of their own lives and families, but the siblings themselves spoke in such involved riddles and nonsense that it took some very direct requests to reveal the truth. Where we last left off last week, after Iphigenia agreed to help Pylades escape the Taurians in return for only Orestes being sacrificed, as they were both meant to be, she asked that he bring a letter home to Argos for her brother. <laughs> and when she finally read the letter and uh, explained who it was for, you know, her brother, uh, who happened to be the stranger standing before her, the siblings were finally reunited in a way that can only be described as... Euripides at his best. It was dramatic and emotional and also silly in all the right ways. But it didn't change the fact that Iphigenia was meant to be sacrificing Orestes, and they were all trapped there among these foreign people who are drawn uh, as far more wild and dangerous than their historical counterparts. Which means it's now up to the siblings and Pilates to concoct a plan of escape. This is episode 241, estranged siblings, a mysterious statue, and a dramatic escape. Euripides' Iphigenia Among the Taurians, part four. We ended last week and we'll start this week with the same words from the chorus as they witnessed this sibling reveal. Quote, What god or mortal or miracle will find a way where there is no way and show two long-lost offspring of Atreus their exit from evils? Even the chorus can't quite believe what they've witnessed. Two siblings who have basically never met each other since Iphigenia was sacrificed by their father when Orestes was only a baby— reunited through these divinely coincidental occurrences. It's drama and intrigue at the most satisfying of levels, and the chorus is as impressed as the audience. Fortunately, Pilates is there to ensure they don't get too caught up in their emotional reunion. He points out that while it's beautiful, they do need to keep their heads in the game. They are trapped there among the Taurians, and now they have even more pressing reasons to plan for their escape. Quote, it's the mark of a wise man to accept his luck for what it is, seize the moment, maximize his happiness. Orestes jumps in that he agrees and that they seem to have luck on their side. But Iphigenia isn't quite finished with their reunion. She stops both of them and she tells them that they will not be doing anything else until someone explains the fate of their third sibling, Electra. Quote, that matters a great deal to me. To which Orestes just replies, quote, she is happily married to Pilates here. Which again, I just think like, what a delightful way to reveal such a thing. And maybe it's also the Ann Carson translation. She does like to kind of be that way with her prose, but it is fun all the same. Iphigenia asks about Pilates' background, who his father is and where he's from, only to learn that he's their cousin, actually, and also Orestes' best friend, and that he wasn't even born when Iphigenia was sacrificed at Aulis by their father. They are so young, these two friends, and Iphigenia has missed so much. Orestes is indebted to Pilates, too, and he makes it very clear to his sister. Not only is he a friend and now husband of Electra, but he is a savior, too. 
Orestes would not be there without him. Iphigenia then returns to Orestes' crimes, the reason he's there, the reason he was saved by Pylades, the murder of their mother. She asks him why she killed her husband to begin with, but Orestes doesn't want to talk about it. Which is too bad, because gods know she did it to avenge Iphigenia's sacrifice, among Agamemnon's other bullshit crimes. Instead, they speak of Argos itself. Is Orestes meant to be its leader now? she asks. It's Menelaus leading the city, Orestes tells her, and he's been exiled for the killing. But it wasn't because of Menelaus that he was forced out, he tells her. It was the Furies themselves who drove him away. To which Iphigenia says, quote, I understand. The goddesses haunt you for our mother's sake. She asks him if the fit he had on the shore that she heard about through the messenger was due to the Furies. Oh, yes, he tells her. And it wasn't the first time that they've made him into a spectacle. Why are you here, though? Iphigenia asks. Why come to this strange, far-off land? It was Apollo who directed me here, Orestes tells her. For what reason? Well, Orestes begins, here's how it all started, after our mother's death. Quote, I was driven into exile with the Furies at my heels, first Delphi, then Athens, where Apollo sent me to render justice to the goddesses whose names we do not name. He goes on to explain that there in Athens, there is a very special and divine court that was created by Zeus explicitly to cleanse Ares of the blood on his hands. Mythologically, this court was sometimes said to be created when Ares killed a man who raped his daughter. It was such a righteous crime that he was tried and acquitted. So famous a trial that it was named for him, the Areopagus, the hill of Ares where the ancient Athenian law courts were located. Courts that were, mythologically, made only the more famous for the trial that Orestes is now recounting to Iphigenia. He tells her that when he arrived there in Athens, no one would take him in, but he was pitied enough to be given some form of shelter. Though he wasn't spoken to by anyone, he was kept apart from them. He says that he played it cool, he didn't make a fuss, quote, and groaning deep in myself that I was a mother killer. One of the things I find most troubling about Orestes' story is how rarely he seems to feel any kind of remorse for killing Clytemnestra, so this reveal like, feels a little important. He doesn't dwell on it, though. He continues to tell Iphigenia about his time in the Areopagus. He tells her that he went to that hill of Ares, and there he stood trial for his crime. That it was him against the eldest of the Furies, both standing on platforms facing the court. Quote, we each said our piece about my mother's murder, and Phoebus saved me with his testimony. He says that it was Athena who counted the votes, that half of them were for him, and so, quote, I left my own murder trial a victor. He says that some of the Furies agreed, or at least conceded with the judgment of the court, but that it wasn't all of them. Quote, the Furies who dissented from the law began to drive me in an endless, restless chase. They chased him, Orestes explains, all the way to Apollo's sanctuary, and it was only there, when he laid down before it, that he was given some relief. He was ready to die right there, if Apollo wasn't going to save him. That it was Apollo who'd ruined him, and Apollo who must save him. Quote, 
Then Apollo shrieked out from his golden tripod and sent me here to get the statue that fell from the sky. That's why he's here, so far from Greece, stumbling upon Iphigenia's own doorstep to take the cult statue of Artemis, said to have fallen from the sky. He's to bring it back to Athens and install it there, that it will mean his salvation. So Orestes says to his sister, quote, Help me accomplish the salvation set out for us. He tells her that if they manage it, if they can steal the cult statue and bring it to Athens, his fury-inflicted madness will finally be over. Quote, all is lost for me, all is lost for the race of Pelops, unless we get our hands on that heaven-dropped statue. The chorus is who first replies to Orestes after his story, after he's begged Iphigenia to help him steal this cult statue of Artemis, the only thing that can free him from the Furies. They say just, quote, Some dread wrath of a god has boiled up against the seed of Tantalus and drives it on through woes. Iphigenia wants to help her brother. She's long hoped to be able to return to Argos to meet him, to be home after so long and after such traumatic last moments with her family. She wants what he wants, she tells Orestes. She wants to return him to their family home in whatever way possible. She even says that her anger for Agamemnon, her killer, is gone now, and that it is only adding to her desire to help Orestes achieve his freedom from the Furies. But that doesn't make it an easy task, not where they are. How can we possibly steal not only from the goddess, but the king too, they ask. Quote, how shall I escape death? What story can I come up with? Or, she goes on, if their plans work and they get the statue on board the ship, then freedom will certainly be possible. But she doesn't see this plan as necessarily including her. She tells Orestes that it would be fine to die if it meant that she saves him. Quote, because you know, when a man is lost from home, they long for him, but a woman doesn't signify. <sighs> and if that isn't some Euripidean commentary, I don't know what is. If I didn't know better, I might think it purely ancient misogyny, but I didn't believe that for a second. Not when the rest of Euripides' catalog exists. No, he is telling us something here. And that something is... Iphigenia might not believe it, but spoilers, she is going to be the one to save them. Orestes is pretty useless. And Orestes immediately tells Iphigenia, no, absolutely not. He will not be her murderer in addition to the murderer of their mother. Quote, I'm your partner. I want to share life and death with you equally. He tells her that he will bring her home with him or die trying. He adds, too, that he wonders if this attempt to steal the cult statue is really something that Artemis would even have a problem with. Like, if it was, then why would her brother, Apollo, ask Orestes to do it? It doesn't seem likely that Apollo would contrive all of this, including Orestes' reunion with his sister, over something that Apollo's sister would be against. And with that in mind, they begin to plan the best means of them both avoiding death. What if we killed the king? <laughs> Orestes suggests because he's Orestes. 
absolutely not, Iphigenia replies. We cannot kill our host. I mean, I don't know, Orestes basically says. If it'll save us both, I think it's worth the risk. No, it isn't, she tells him. And she's right. Like, did he learn nothing? Okay, what if you hide me inside the temple? He suggests as a hilariously mild counter to the murdering of the king. Do you mean that we'd escape once it gets dark? She clarifies. Yes, Orestes replies. Quote, night belongs to thieves, daylight to truth. But when Iphigenia points out that, unfortunately, there are guards in the temple all the time, so it won't be so easy as just, like, waiting for it to get dark. Orestes replies by exclaiming that, Ugh, okay, he gives up. It's all over. There's no way out. <laughs> it's a very on brand, if you ask me, like, Orestes is is never the idea man. Pretty sure almost the exact same thing happened uh, in Euripides' Orestes. <laughs> Iphigenia, though, thankfully, has got a plan. Quote, I'll turn your troubles to use in a cunning way. And of course, Orestes replies just to say that women are good at scheming. Because of course he does. But Iphigenia's next line after the women scheming is, quote, I'll declare you came from Argos, a murderer of your mother. And while it's technically, you know, her announcing her plan, it feels a bit more like a response to his jab about the scheming, like pot, kettle. But regardless, it is the plan. She tells him that she can tell the Taurians that because of his crimes, he can't be sacrificed to the goddess as he is. He's impure. It, it would be sacrilege. What about the statue? He asks. Well, she explains, I'll say that you need to be purified in seawater for your crimes and that the statue does too, because you touched it. And where do we go from there? He asks, which like, Orestes, come on. She's clearly got it. But if it can I is kind, she tells him, well, we'll go to your ship. So is it you or someone else carrying the statue? He asks, and honestly, it feels like Orestes is more of a hindrance to her plan than anything else. But who am I to judge? He's not my brother. Yes, she says simply, I will be the one holding it. So what about Pilates? He'll be there with us, she says, going through the same purification for his pollution. And are we doing this without telling the king? No, Iphigenia clarifies, quote, I'll win him with words, no way to prevent him noticing. So you must take care, take very great care of everything else. All this feels like a bit of a red flag uh, because of Restes, but we go on. Iphigenia adds that these women, the chorus of Greeks that are with them, they have to come along. They have to be in on the plan. Make it happen then, Orestes says, quote, find convincing arguments. A, a woman has the power to stir pity. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. 
with the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast, I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature. And of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now that they've finally got a plan of escape, it is up to Iphigenia to make it work with the chorus of women. 
She doesn't want to leave them behind, but they all have to be in on the plan in order for it to work. She pleads with them, her friends, her only friends, that her fate is in their hands, that it's up to them whether she gets to return with her beloved brother to see her long-lost sister, or whether she's left to die here among the Torians. Quote, We are women, as a species devoted to one another, staunch in defending our common interests. If only that were always true. She, she goes on. <laughs> she tells them that they have to stay quiet about the plan and support it in whatever ways they can. That they must remain loyal to her in order for it to work. And of course, if they help her with the plan, it will benefit them as much as it does her. They will be able to return to their own homes in Greece after so many years away. So what do you say? She finishes, quote, If you reject me, I perish and my poor brother too. So like, no pressure, ladies. <laughs> I mean, they're with her, though. It's an easy decision. They will stay silent. They will do their part to make this plan work. So once Iphigenia has given her thanks to the chorus, she turns back to Orestes and Pilates to set the plan in motion. It's their job to enter the temple, she says. And I think that's it. The king is almost here. He's going to investigate whether you've been sacrificed already. And once she said that, she makes a call to the goddess. Quote, Oh, goddess who saved me in the folds of Aulis from a terrible murdering father's hand. Save me now, too, along with these men. She goes on, it seems, to tell even Artemis to leave the lands of the Taurians, that it isn't right for her to be here when she could be in Athens, quote, blessed and happy. And with that, the three of them go inside the temple, and the chorus remains, to sing of the bird Halcyon, who flies along the rocky shoreline mourning her husband. They sing of feeling that way themselves, like birds without wings, longing for their homeland and everything in the Greek world that they've so long been away from. They sing of rivers of tears, of the towers of their homelands being toppled, of being driven from their homes, trafficked and brought so far away. They sing of Iphigenia, daughter of Agamemnon, how together they all serve Artemis on an altar where only humans are killed. Quote, but happiness keeps shifting. To fall into evils after good fortune makes a heavy life for a mortal. They sing of Iphigenia being brought home on an Argive ship. How she will go to Athens and be home on Greek soil. What they don't believe, though, is that they will go with her. Iphigenia might have told the chorus of women that if she escapes, so would they, but they don't seem to believe her. They sing of wishing they could return home, but that they will be left behind. They wish they could travel the path of the sun, drop themselves down into their old bedrooms, back into their old lives. And then the king of the Torians, Thoas, arrives. He's looking for Iphigenia. Just after he asks about her, Iphigenia returns to the stage, and she's holding this cult statue of Artemis. She begins to act out her plan. She tells him that the men sent for her to sacrifice were impure, that she knows this because the statue turned her back on them. And no, she says when he asks, it wasn't an earthquake that did it, but the goddess herself. 
They're polluted, she says. Quote, they were carrying bloodstains from home when they came here. She tells him that they killed their mother, that they've been chased through all of Greece, and that's why she has the statue. And she has to cleanse it out in the open, far from the altar, covered in blood. Iphigenia is cunning here. She plays off of everything that Thoas asks her. She says she interrogated the men when the statue turned its back. That's how she learned about their crimes. She says that they even baited her, that they told her that her only brother was alive so that she might spare them, even adding that her father was alive, another reason to keep these strangers alive. Thoas isn't remotely worried that she isn't telling him the truth. He eats it all up. Quote, Naturally, you remain loyal to the goddess, he states, and it isn't even a question. And she ensures he remains convinced. Quote, Oh yes, I hate Greece utterly. Greece ruined me. And so when he asks her what they should do with the strangers, he is more than ready to listen to whatever she has to say. It's law, she says. They must be purified with cleansing rituals. In the river or the sea? He asks. And she says, quote, The sea washes away all human evil. Of course, he agrees. Uh, then they'll be perfectly pure for the goddess. Exactly, and I'll be better off too, she says. Thoas is eating out of the palm of Iphigenia's hand. Hmm, he says, uh, doesn't the sea wash right up next to the temple here? Uh, yes, she says, but we need a, a more secluded spot. We have other things that need to be done for the ritual. Oh, oh, sure, sure, he says easily. Quote, take them wherever you want. I've no desire to see forbidden things. Iphigenia nods. Uh, I've got to cleanse the statue, too, she says. Oh, sure, sure, yeah, of course, he agrees again, completely. No questions asked. Quote, your piety and forethought are impeccable. <laughs> she knows she has him, so she goes on. Uh, I want to tie the prisoners up, she says. They're Greek, so they can't be trusted. Of course, he says. And, and she wants their heads covered. And for him to send some servants with her. And for him to send someone else around the town to tell everyone to stay indoors. Oh, oh sure, Thoas says. So, so they stay away from the blood? Yes, exactly. They, they can't be polluted, too. He tells her, quote, How well you care for our city. And those I need to protect, she adds. And he assumes she means him. Oh, she's so admirable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Ifigenia nods. I assume she's trying not to look giddy here. Like, this is going really, really well. Now you, she tells him, uh, you stay inside the temple and cleanse it with sulfur. Oh, sure, yeah, he says. So that it's pure for you. Mm, yes, exactly. Uh, and when the men are brought out, you need to cover your eyes. Oh, mm -hmm, yeah, definitely, he says. I, I don't want to see a guilty man. Yeah, right, exactly. Uh -huh. That's what I mean. <laughs> she agrees because, you know, uh, this, this man is gullible. And uh, if I take a while, she continues, uh, don't worry. Like, it's all fine. There, there's nothing to be concerned about. You definitely don't need to come looking for me. Oh, totally, he says. Quote, take your time. Do the work of the goddess properly. <laughs> oh, here they are now, Iphigenia says, when Orestes and Pilates are brought from the temple. And then, Iphigenia seems to address everyone, like the town itself. She speaks of what she'll do, purifying the crimes and washing away blood with blood. 
She calls for the people of the town to keep away from her, though, from the pollution. Quote, anyone about to enter a marriage, anyone heavy with child, keep back. Step away, lest this uncleanness fall upon you. She's trying to ensure that innocent people aren't caught up in what she's about to do. She wants to escape her captors. She wants to go home. It might be violent. But what she doesn't want to do is hurt innocent people. It's the right thing to do to keep innocents, to keep children safe from violence. It's the human thing to do. So even Iphigenia, an ancient mythological Greek who was raised to believe that anyone who is not Greek was a barbarian, knows that all children are human. And all children and all innocent people deserve the same human rights as everyone else. Children don't deserve to be punished for the actions of others. Definitely not thousands of them. With that, Iphigenia makes a prayer to Artemis that her sanctuary be purified and, quote, As for the rest, I do not say it, but I make a sign to the gods who know more and to you, goddess. Again, it's only the chorus left on the stage while whatever comes next happens offstage. So they sing of the titan goddess Leto, mother of Apollo and of Artemis. They sing of her trials, her labor. They sing of Apollo, how he killed that snake on Mount Parnassus, how he installed the oracle of Delphi. They sing of how it was once stolen from him by Mother Earth, that oracle, but he ran to his daddy and he complained until Zeus gave it back. And no, they, they don't describe it like that, uh, but I can't take Apollo seriously. The chorus sings of, of this return from Zeus to Apollo of the oracle, and that in doing so, quote, he bestowed trust in the singing of the god's word. And it's then that a messenger arrives on stage. He's looking for the king, and he has news. So when the chorus asks him what news he has and why he needs the king, he spills it. The two men, the strangers who were set to die, they've escaped with the help of Ivaganaya. Oh, wow. Wow, the chorus tells him. That's crazy. <laughs> but sorry, guy. The king isn't here. Uh, he ran off. Where did he go? The messenger asks, like, frantic you know no idea they tell him like he, he just he ran off somewhere like you better go find him though they are playing their role well just as if Iphigenia hoped the messenger tells them quote see how treacherous is the female species you too have some share in these goings on don't you Psh, they tell him, don't be crazy. What would we care about these foreigners escaping? And also, like, shouldn't you be running off now, like, in that direction away from, from the temple? Oh, no, I won't, he says, not until someone else tells me if the king is inside this temple or not. And so he starts calling inside the temple, banging on the door and shouting to whoever might be in there. And 
so busted, <laughs> the king exits the temple asking him what all the trouble is about. And I like to think the chorus is kind of looking around all innocent, like maybe they're whistling. <laughs> the messenger immediately tells the king that the women lied to him, singing he was gone, but here he is. But then he realizes like he has more important things to tell the king, so he does. He tells the king what's happened, or rather like what is in the midst of happening. He tells him how Iphigenia has run off with the strangers, the foreigners, and the statue that fell from the sky. He tells the king that the purification was a trick played by Iphigenia, <laughs> that she was intending to save Orestes the whole time. Orestes? The king says, surprised. You mean to tell me that the stranger was the prince of Mycenae, Iphigenia's own brother? Focus, king, the messenger basically says. Like, right now we've got uh, more urgent issues than the family reunion. Like, they are escaping. Right, right, of course, the king says, making a very confident threat that they won't escape him before the messenger goes on to, well, to tell us all exactly what happened. He talks about how he and the other guards brought the strangers and Iphigenia to the shore, where, unbeknownst to them, Orestes' ship was anchored. There... Iphigenia had them stand back, uh, saying she needed to kindle a forbidden flame. Then uh, she took the ropes that held the men from us guards, he says, and uh, stood behind them. Yes, he says, it was suspicious, but we went along with it. And then she started singing and chanting, like behaving as though she was a priest, <gasps> purifying someone of pollution. Then, the messenger says, after a, a while of this, we, you know, we worried that, that once the men were set free, like, they might kill Iphigenia and try to escape themselves. So we watched carefully. And in truth, uh, you know, there wasn't anything to be done in that moment. Uh, it wasn't our fault. But then we saw the ship, he says. Like, the Greek ship was just off the shore, all ready to go. And, like, suddenly the ship was manned with 50 sailors and, and standing on the stern were the two strangers free of their bindings, watching as the sailors prepared the ship to set sail. He says that, that you know, he and the guards, though, were, they were still holding tightly to Iphigenia, and that they, they tried to hold onto the ship's ropes and, and, like, even yanked at the oars, anything to stop it. And they called to the men, asking who they were and, and why they wanted to abduct this woman. And that's when one of the two men announced that he was Orestes, son of Agamemnon, brother to Iphigenia. The messenger goes on to describe basically uh, getting beat up by Orestes and Pilates, how no one had blades, but those guys, they had fists and feet for kicking. So the guards ran just up a cliff where they could like then throw rocks at the ship, still trying to stop them. But there were archers on the ship. And before long, Orestes and Pilates had gotten Iphigenia on board and, you know, the ship was moving, sailing away from the shore and the guards could do nothing. They described one of the men as shouting, quote, We have the prize for which we sailed through the hostile passage of the clashing rocks. And so they, they sailed off. <laughs> but when the ship was finally free of the harbor, the messenger goes on to say, there was a horrible wave and terrible wind, and it was it was pushing the ship back. Though they, you know, they kept trying to move forward, but it wasn't working. And it was then that Iphigenia got up and began to pray to Artemis, calling to the daughter of Leto to keep her priestess safe, to send her back to Greece and forgive her for stealing the statue, to understand why she did it. Because if any goddess understands the love of a sister to her brother, it's Artemis. The ship kept sailing, 
but it also kept being thrown back towards the rocks. And that's when the messenger ran off, he says, in search of the king. Like, that's all he saw. He came here to tell him what was happening. He believes that Poseidon is stopping the ship. Like, you know, that he's there's a terrible wave or, like, a storm. Uh, Poseidon's on it. Like, maybe he'll dash it on the rocks and then the brother and sister can be, like, returned there to the Torians. Thoas is thrilled by this turn. He is he is ready to watch the ship be destroyed, if that's what Poseidon's doing, you know, or sent back to his lands by the waves. He calls on everyone to head to the shores, to watch as it is brought back, to watch as the children of Agamemnon are thrown back to the shore or killed in the sea. And he turns to the chorus, telling them that they will be blamed for their role in this and for just being Greek, because it's the villains who blame and punish people just for where they were born. But this is when Athena arrives on the scene. Yeah, you heard me. Athena arrives not on the stage, but on the deus ex machina, the machine, the crane that holds the gods above the stage so that they can appear at their most godlike. And she speaks to Thoas, telling him quite simply that he's got to let them go. It's all over, buddy. It was Apollo who decreed their actions, and it was he who sent Orestes to steal the statue, he who ordained their escape. She tells him that he won't get them back, like even if he tries, that Poseidon is actually doing her a favor, and he's calming the seas so that they can have a smooth sailing home. And then she speaks directly to Orestes, though she notes that while, you know, he isn't there, he can hear her all the same. She tells Orestes to listen to her words, to take the statue and Iphigenia and go. When they reach Athens, there's a spot on the edges of Attica, a place called Halai. There, he's to build a temple to Artemis that will house the statue. He's to call it Toric, after the Taurian lands. He's to establish a custom there. Quote, When they celebrate her festival, let them hold a sword at a man's throat and draw blood. Then she speaks to Iphigenia, explains that she needs to maintain her status as a priestess of Artemis, and she will do it in Brauron. She says that it's there that Iphigenia will live and die and be buried, and later people will make offerings to her, quote, fine woven robes left behind by women who die in childbirth. She even adds to Thoas that he's to send the chorus of Greek women from his lands, quote, as a reward for their righteousness. She announces that the trial Orestes went through on the hill of Ares will become standard. And finally, quote, Go then, child of Agamemnon, bring your sister out of this land, and you, Thoas, calm your rage. Thoas doesn't try to fight Athena. He knows when to listen to a goddess. He agrees with all she's said and wishes them all the best. Thoas sings a final thank you to Athena, a final prayer for the goddess, and with another prayer to Nike, victory for his own life, the play ends. Oh, nerds, nerds, nerds. Um, thank you so much for listening. 
I want to talk more about the ramifications of this ending and everything that Athena decreed, because much, if not all of it, is based on, like, real Attic customs and, like, court systems. Um, but I've, I've had a, a horrible few days, and I am far too emotionally exhausted to write or speak another thing into this microphone. So we're going to leave those for another day. I will just say, in case I forget to say it, for all, he includes a couple of silly misogynist jokes. Like, I love that he, or Euripides, writes misogynist statements into his play and then proceeds to have the women be the most competent characters in the whole thing and be the only reason that the heroes survive and that it is not a tragedy at all. <sighs> He's perfect. Anyway, um, I've got a guest lined up to talk all things real worship of Artemis for Women's History Month. So this will not be the last that you hear of the goddess's real life customs, particularly Browron. Whew. But for now, let's just finish off with a lovely five-star review that came at a particularly appropriate time for me. This one comes from a user called Flawless Joe in the States. So good! Liv does an amazing job making the classics relatable. I also love the recent dive into ancient geography. It's so crazy cool hearing about ancient places and people who still exist under the same names. Thank you, Flawless Joe. And uh, let's keep it that way. Let's Talk About Myths Baby is written and produced by me, Liv Albert. Michaela Smith is the Hermes to my Olympians. She is my assistant producer. Laura Smith is now the production assistant and audio engineer. Select music used in this episode was by Luke Chaos. The podcast is part of the iHeart Podcast Network. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Help me continue bringing you the world of Greek mythology and the ancient Mediterranean by becoming a patron, where you will get bonus episodes and more. Visit patreon.com slash mythsbaby or click the link in this episode's description. Thank you all so much. You are lovely. I am Liv, and I, I just really love Euripides. Like, I think he's brilliant. I want to give him a hug. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Therapy for Black Girls podcast is your space to explore mental health, personal development, 
and all the small decisions we can make to become the best possible versions of ourselves. I'm your host, Dr. Joy Harden Bradford, a licensed psychologist in Atlanta, Georgia, and I can't wait for you to join the conversation every Wednesday. Listen to the Therapy for Black Girls podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Take good care, and we'll see you there.